Philippians chapter 3. We'll be finishing up chapter 3 this morning, verses 12 to the end. Paul is kind of hinting, going into this idea, continuing his, uh, his thought that we began last week, talking about how Christ is our treasure. We asked, uh, the question we asked last week, what is your true treasure? What is it that you long for? What is it that, that you drives you? What is it that you desire more than anything else? When it kind of came down to Paul's discussion here, and it came down to, for him, it was Christ. It was knowing him. It was experiencing him. It was getting to enjoy Christ, not just what he had right here in this earth, but what he looked forward to in the future. And so we're kind of continuing that thought here as we, we go to the end of Philippians chapter 3 this morning, continuing that thought of what is our true treasure? What does it mean to really know Christ? Paul uses an example of racing and running when you're younger. I don't mean now, when you're younger. So Dan, a couple others, Sonia. I was a sprinter. I was not a long-distance runner. I actually hated running. I, I got on the track team when I was in high school, and my coach was like, oh, you look like you could run the one mile. You look like you could run the two mile. Yeah, I know. I made it. I finished last. I was not a long-distance runner. I know you're thinking, one mile, that's not very far. I, I was a soccer player, and so for me, sprinting was good. I could sprint 40, 40 meters. I could do it like in 4.2, 4.3, 4.4 seconds. I was super fast back then, before I had this, way back then. I was able to outrun most of the other players on my team. And my track coach still thought I was good at long distance. He had me run the 100-meter he had me run the 200-meter. He had me run the 400-meter. Uh, he had me run the 800-meter. 800 was about the farthest I could get without being totally out of breath. I could do the 100. I could do the 200. I got through the 400, but that four realizing to get my time going. It's just one time around the track, and I was just kind of taking my time going around the track, and my coach and everybody's like, what are you doing? What are you going so slow for? And I got right to the 200-meter mark, and zoom, came in first place at the end i was more of a sprinter paul in his discussion here he's saying that life the christian life we live it's a long distance run and he uses the analogy of running in this and understand that paul is here he's writing this letter at the end of his life he lived the first part studying Hebrew scriptures and studying under Gamaliel and he was a Pharisee, the Pharisees, the Hebrew, the Hebrews. We talked about all that last week and his religious resume, so to speak. He lifted, he said, if you want to pet your resume against mine, I'll be willing to do it. I count it as rubbish. I count it as dung, but I'll be willing to pet your resume against mine any day of the week. So he's here at the end of his life, having lived his life, serving the Lord now at the end as after he had this Damascus experience and he's not slowing down. He's still pressing harder and harder and harder toward the goal, his goal of knowing Christ. He realized that at the beginning of his life, he'd missed out on so much. He'd kind of squandered his time. He'd missed the whole purpose of the Old Testament. He'd missed the whole purpose that Christ came initially. He missed all that, and he became the persecutor of the church. And now, from the Damascus time on, 
he was pressing hard and running hard to learning who Christ really is and running hard after him. We're going to look here in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to the end. Read with me together, if you would, in your Bibles. I'm reading out the CSB this morning. It says, Not that I have already reached the goal, or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold. Hold of it, because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to the, what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature and think this way, and if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this to you, also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join me in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, and many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomachs, their glory is in their shame, they are focused on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait for the Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble conditions into likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Paul's laying out here for us the challenge, five challenges we're going to have to achieving maturity. He lays it out here for us, not so that we can fear what's coming, so we can identify them in our lives and move beyond them. If, we're, if it's the goal of our lives is to truly know Christ, to know Him intimately, to know Him personally, and to experience Him in this life here and now, we have to be aware of some of these things in our lives that are warning signs, things that might hinder us and keep us from achieving that knowledge of who God is. Now, it's not a secret knowledge. It's not some hidden knowledge. God lays himself out right here. There's nothing in God's word that is hidden. There's nothing in God that is secret. But there are things in our lives that can come up that keep us from properly identifying and properly getting to experience and so we're going to look at those here this morning, these challenges. Number one, we first got to, and Paul lays this out here in verse 12. He says, we have to humbly acknowledge that we haven't yet arrived. Now, I've been a believer since I was seven years old. 43 years, almost 44 years. Others in this room have been Christians much longer than I have. And the temptation is there to say, I've been studying all there is really to know. I've just got to now teach you. I'm already perfect. And he says in verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider myself to have made it. I've got all this knowledge of Scripture. I've got all this understanding of the Old Testament. I've got all this understanding and knowledge of who God is. But there's still so much more to learn. I've told a story about my professor in college, Dr. Harold Wilmington. We called him Mr. Bible on campus. He died about a year or so ago. But I remember him coming to class one day. It was like the Old Testament survey class, just a basic class. He'd been teaching Old Testament survey, New Testament survey for years and years and years. And he came into class and he says, God showed me something new in his word this week. We're like, what? You're Mr. Bible. 
You know everything in God's Word. You've got it virtually memorized. How could God teach you something new? At that time, he must have been 60, over 60 years old. He'd been a believer for decades. Been teaching God's Word for years behind his name. And he comes in and he goes, God showed me something new about himself. I kind of feel that way about Paul. That no longer how long we live, no matter how long, how much time we spend studying God's Word, we need to understand that we will never arrive. At that point, we can say, I know everything there is to know about God. We're going to have all of eternity to study Him, right? And I can think there's going to be new things, new things, new things. We're learning about God all through eternity. It's going to be awesome sitting at His feet and learning about who God is and all that He's done for us. There are things He's created in this universe that we have, He created for His own glory so that He could enjoy them and all those in heaven could enjoy with Him. We're going to get to see all the wonderful things that He's done and get to see how He's working in people's lives. We're going to get to look back in our own lives and go, oh, that's why that happened. That's why I had to go through that experience. That's why I struggled in that part of my life. Because God was teaching me something about Himself. Paul's in prison. He would much rather be out, right? But Paul understood that he had this religious resume, he had this spirituality that was there, but when he met Christ on the Damascus Road, he became humbled. God had to humble him. God had to put him in his place. Once he was a Pharisee, but now he's a bond slave to Christ. He had to be humbled. And understand that Paul is with this church of Philippi and he's with us on this journey to know who Christ is and what he wants to do in our lives. It's not just a matter of having knowledge. If it was just knowledge, memorizing this book would be enough. Going through Awanas would be enough. If it was just a matter of having the knowledge, we can go back to school, get all the knowledge we want, get all the degrees behind our name we want. But it's about a single day that we move toward that place of maturity in our own life. Christian, no longer how long or how short a time you've been knowing Christ, there's, we still have a long way to go. Number two, pursue the greater knowledge of Christ. This was Paul's goal. Look at verse 12. What does he say there? He said, Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. He pursued this greater knowledge of who Christ was, his person, his character, all that is within us. A lot of us can identify with number one, right? Yep, we're not there yet. We understand we're not perfect. But don't let that idea that I've got a long way to go just move us into complacency thinking, I'm just going to sit and let God teach me. I'm going to come and sit and become just a, a, a chair, I was going to say pew sitter, we're not pews in here, a chair sitter and just absorb. Don't let that move us to complacency. There is no coasting in the Christian life. See, for Paul, he could have very easily just coasted, right? 
He could have just coasted to the rest of his life. Yet what does he say here? Look at verse 12. What does he say? He says, I make every effort to know Christ. I make every effort to take hold of it. Verse 13, the one thing I do, I forget what is behind, I reach forward to the calling of Christ. I'm reaching, I'm pushing forward. I'm not sitting and just absorbing. Verse 14 says, I pursue. He's running after the prize. He understands that his relationship with Christ is so important, he can't just sit. He can't just absorb. He can't just not do anything. No matter how far along we are in our Christian walk. Paul's example here to the Philippian church of pressing on, pressing on, pressing on. One more thing, pursuing. Make every effort to take hold of this knowledge of who Christ is, what he did for us, and letting that transform. 2 Timothy verse 4, 13. He's at the end of his life and he says, as you come, bring the parchments. When you come, bring those books with you. I'm sitting here in prison, but when you come for a visit, bring my parchments with you so I might study more. Bring those things. Bring my notes. I want to sit down and write some more. I want to learn more about who Christ is. I want to write down more so I can encourage you, so I can learn, so I can be encouraged as well. He was not letting his time there go to waste. He wasn't satisfied with just that current knowledge he had of who Christ is. He was always pressing on, always pressing on, wanting to learn and study more, pray more, read more, engage more. He wanted more. Do you and I? Are we satisfied with where we are in our faith? The temptation is there to just say, I'm good. I'm too busy. I'm working 50, 60, 80 hours a week. I, I don't have time to discover more about who Christ is. I don't have really time. I'm, I'm so tired. What was Paul's excuse? He's sitting in prison. And yet he's there. I need to learn more. Trying to discover more ways to find out who Christ is and more about who Christ's character so the prize. What was the prize he was looking after? Number three, the wonder of the gospel. The wonder. I mean, here's Paul remembering what his life was like. He meets Jesus on the Damascus Road and his life is radically transformed. He's blinded for a few days. The believer in the city comes up, lays his hands on him. His eyes, his scales fall away. His eyes are opened. Not just his physical eyes, but also his internal eyes, his spiritual eyes as well. He begins to realize what God has done and what God wants to do in him. God took a hold of him there on that road and did not let go. God took a hold of Paul and, did, and Paul did not let go. Listen to the story. Acts chapter 22. Flashed around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord of Nazareth, the one you are persecuting? Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking. I said, What should I do, Lord? The Lord said, Get up, go into Damascus, and there you will be told everything that has been assigned to you to do. 
At that place on the Damascus Road, Jesus stepped down. He got a hold of Paul, grasped a hold of him, and Paul began to understand just who it was that he had been persecuting, just who it was that he had been fighting against. And as Jesus got a hold of Paul, Paul got a hold of him and never let go. His desire was to go deeper, to go deeper, to go deeper into to the gospel, not to let go of it, but to go deeper into the gospel so that he became fully understanding of what Christ had done for him. He understood that he, he was, he'd been persecuting the church this whole time. He'd been persecuting the, the, the believers this whole time. And Jesus said, in spite of that, you are going to serve me. I'm going to look beyond those sins, look beyond what you did, look beyond your failings, and I'm going to grasp a hold of you. You stay and you, you, let, you don't let go. And together we're going to do great things. I grew up on the East Coast, on the beaches of South Carolina. We didn't have lifeguards out there. The water wasn't deep enough. We didn't have a drop-off far enough. But when we were in, in California, we noticed... And even in Florida, when we were visiting my folks in Florida, they get these lifeguard stands all over the place. And occasionally, a lifeguard would stand up and go, tweet, blow the whistle, and be waving the person in. Tweet, waving them, you're getting too far out, don't go out that far, it drops off. They know where the drop-off is, right? Or tweet, they can see the undertow, they can see the riptide. And they're trying to warn people, get away from it. It happens where somebody gets caught in the riptide or the undertow and, coming up they're higher than they they remember and they're getting tired out and all of a sudden they're floundering and the lifeguard's got to jump down off of his stand and grab that little flotation thingy whatever it's called looks like a torpedo and drags it behind him and they run in the water and they go out there and they grab that person and that person who's drowning or who's struggling grabs a hold of that life that little flotation thingy that little torpedo and they hold on to it for dear life as the lifeguard drags him back into shore. It's kind of the picture of Paul and us. Floundering in the deep water, floundering in the riptide, floundering around without Christ. He jumps down into the water, comes up to us and grabs a hold of us and gives us that buoy, gives us that little flotation device that we can grab a hold of and drags us back to shore, safe and sound. The wonder of what Christ has done for us. When we were stuck in our sins, unable to come to God, unable and unwilling many times to do what, God, what, what was needed. When we were still stuck in our sins, the Bible says, Jesus died for us. I love that verse. I love that verse because it's such a great picture. That person who's drowning out on the water, they have no way of getting back to shore. They're going to struggle. They're going to struggle. They're going to go under. And Jesus dives in and rescues them when they had no hope. Paul was in awe of what Christ did for him. The rest of his life, he was in awe of what Christ did for him. 
and live that out as he shared with people. As I'm driving around in the mornings with, in my little Uber car, I'm getting people in my car that God's placed in there, and I'm, I'm just sharing. Sometimes I'm talking to them about life, talking to them about their jobs, talking to them about their family, but occasionally somebody gets in there, and I try to bring it up or say, you know, I pastor a church over here in Thornton. You pastor a church? Yeah, I pastor a church. Or I, I lived in a... I was a missionary pastor over there. What, 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 what does that mean? Well, I was over there sharing and talking to them about Jesus. What? And if the conversation keeps going, if they keep asking questions... I know that God's working on their hearts. And I'm going to be out there throwing seed. I'm throwing seed. I'm throwing seed out there, hoping that something's going to stick. Throwing seed. Sharing the gospel with them because I am in awe of what God did for me. I am in awe of what, how God radically transformed my life. I'm in awe of how He has protected me my whole life. How He's provided for me my whole life. He's given me some wonderful daughters and an awesome wife. He has blessed me beyond measure. I am so thankful for God and what He has done. I'm in awe of Him. And I want others to be in awe of Him as well. I want to share that joy that I have for Christ with as many that are around me that will hear it, that will listen. If somebody sits still long enough, that's why I like driving for Uber because they have to sit still. If they jump out, they're in trouble. Oh, really? we got a 20-minute, we got a 40 we got an hour-and-a-half ride. Sweet! Somebody sits still long enough, I'm going to talk to him about Jesus. He is always on my mind. And their eternal position is always on my mind as well. I don't know what they're, where they're going. I don't know what their position is in Christ. I don't know, but I want them to know how great and awesome my Savior is. I want them to know and understand that I love Jesus more than anything. My wife is not my number one. She's my number two. Jesus is my number one. I love him more than anything in this world. I love him more than you, I'm sorry. He is my number one. She, my wife, Regina is my number two. And you guys all take a number. <laughs> I'm in awe of what God has done for me. That's what Paul is saying here. He says, I press on toward the heavenly call of Christ, of God in Christ Jesus. And verse 12, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Look at that. He has made me his own. Has Jesus made you his own? Is that you are just in awe of that? He didn't just leave you stuck. He stepped out of heaven and made you his own child. Does that radically, does that transform into your thinking, the way you think about others around you? It should. Never lose the wonder of the gospel. Number four. Follow heavenly-minded examples in our lives. We ought to follow heavenly-minded examples in our lives. Look at verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Look at verse 17. And brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. What's he saying there? Imitate those who are imitating Paul. Imitate those who are where you want to be spiritually. Imitate the lives of those who are where you need to be and where you want to be. Because whom you follow matters. Who you hang out with matters. Imitating the right example is critical to your growth. Does that mean we never have friends who are unbelievers or friends who 
not living correctly? No. But it does mean you, sometimes you limit the amount of time you spend with people who are not walking in a spiritual fashion. It means that we focus and spend more time with those who are walking together so you can walk together in your faith. You spend more time with those of the body of Christ who are going where you want to go and you're on the journey together than you do with somebody who is not, has no desire for faith. God has placed you in one of those five intersections of life, right? Where you, where you workshop, eat, play, and live. He's placed those, those people in your intersections of your life so that you can impact them and influence them, not the other way around. He's placed them in our lives. He's placed us in their lives so that we can share with them the joy of our salvation. Not so they can drag us down. The end of chapter 2 last week, we talked about Timothy and Paphroditus. And Paul is lifting them up and saying, follow them, imitate them. They're good examples for you. In chapter 2, we, t- we talked about the came obedient even unto death, death on the cross for you and I. His character, his attitude, things we ought to imitate. Paul's saying, imitate me. Imitate me as well. He understands that it's a lifelong journey, a long race. As much as I hate long races, this Christian walk is a long, long race. Satan would love for us to imitate the wrong person, wouldn't he? He would love for us to get around somebody who's not walking on the same journey as us. What kind of person should we be imitating? Paul's laid this out in Philippians already. It's behind me on the screen. He says, need to follow, imitate those who are putting the needs of others before their own needs. Imitate those who are not grumbling and complaining. Imitate those who are pouring out their lives for the cause of the gospel. Imitate those who listen to and illustrate sound Bible teaching that is taught and caught. Imitate those who have godly marriages. You know Satan's trying to destroy the the family right now? He is out on this. He's been for a number of years to destroy, to destroy, to destroy families. Imitate the godly marriages around you. We learn so much as young married folks, young married people, young marrieds. When we were first over in Korea, we, we imitated those that were in church with us who were in their married lives where we wanted to be. We looked at the way they raised their kids and tried to imitate that. We looked at the way that they interacted together as husband and wife and imitated that. And eventually some of that caught on. He said, not, not just that, also imitate those who are good at evangelism and who have a passion for the lost. If we are commanded as Christians, if we are commanded as, as followers of Jesus to go and make disciples of those around us, how do we learn to make disciples? By imitating those who are do, already doing it, getting around those who are already doing it, watching how those who are doing it, looking around and asking God to put us in situations in our lives so that we can watch and see how it's being done. Go and read some biographies of some missionaries, early church fathers. Imitate the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. These people who are the pretenders, they, they're like the Judaizers, they're these Pharisees who lift themselves up as spiritual examples. But yet really, Paul says, they're 
God is their belly. They have these lustful appetites. Their glory and their shame. They have these open lifestyles that they should be ashamed of. They should be ashamed of their lifestyle, and yet they put it out there as normal. The sexual sins, the greed, the disrespect, the laziness that's all around us. They throw these out there. This is just who I am. It's how God made me. I have my own struggles as well. God made me. He allowed me to have certain struggles in my life, but I am working and working and working at overcoming those struggles so that I am not the same person now as one that's going to meet God in the future. And these other imitators also put their, set their mind on earthly things. In other words, they're more excited about the things of this world. They're not captured by Christ, His cross, or His resurrection. They're more excited about the Broncos game, their entertainment on TV. They're more excited about those things and the things of the world, what the world has to offer than they are about getting to know Christ deeper. The temptation is there for all of us. The temptation is there to spend more time on our TV, on our computers, on our phones, going to games, than it is spending time with the body of Christ, with those in the body of Christ, learning more about who Christ is. Lastly, Paul says, learn to live in the light of our true citizenship. We are residents of this world. We are residents of the United States and citizens of the U.S., citizens of the state of Colorado, but our true citizenship is in heaven. If you are a child of God, if you are a follower of Jesus, your true citizenship is in heaven. Look at verse 20, 21, what does he say? But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord of all things, to himself. This is not my home. I'm a resident. I'm going through this life, but this the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. That's my home. These things are just temporary. As much as we treasure them now, that is to be treasured so much far beyond. Romans 8.18, Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Man, you want to see God, Paul's passion? Continue reading that verse, Romans 8, 18 through 27. Go back home to this afternoon and read through the end of, of verse 27 there. And you see God, Paul's passion for the future. His passion for, for seeing Christ in heaven. His passion. Philippi was called Little Rome. It was a colony of Rome. And when people went there, it reminded them of Big Rome. This church, our church, the body of Christ, is a little colony compared to the kingdom of heaven. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We, this is not our home. And what, we, what we experience here, the life we live here, is just a picture of what is to come. What is that going to look like? It's, if, we are the, if we are a little colony, how should that look now? It means we are caring for the vulnerable around us. We're caring for orphans and widows around us. We're doing all that is good and right and true now. We're giving to the poor. We're speaking edifying words to one another. We're outdoing one another and showing honor to one another. We're not showing partiality or racism. We're putting the needs of others before our own. 
When we do that, when this little colony does that, when we come together and we live in such a way, people can say, smells like heaven. That little church, that's a picture of what heaven's going to be like. As we kelves and we don't look at this, at our needs first, we're giving brought upon us around us. Oh, smells like heaven. Heaven is going to be wonderful. But what we have here is just a hint, just a hint. Every year, my number two has candles going all around the house this time of year. We got pine scented candles and pumpkin scented candles and apple scented candles and buttercream scented candles and this scent and that scent and that scent and this scent and that scent. And you walk in the house and you go, whoa, that reminds me of pumpkin pie. That reminds me of the Christmas tree. That reminds me of cookie dough. It's just a reminder. And my mouth starts watering, right? Oh, pumpkin pie is coming. And then it's, oh, it's just a candle. It's just letting me know something wonderful is coming. I love Christmas. I love the th- holiday, Thanksgiving holiday, Christmas seasons because of all the wonderful food and things that she's going to be making. I don't need it here. I need it here. I don't need it here. I want it here, right? But those candles are just a scent of what is coming. We are just a scent. We are just a picture. We are just a hint of what is in store for us in heaven. C.S. Lewis said this, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think, ceased to think of the other world, they have become so ineffective in this one. Ouch. We get so caught up with me, myself, and I, the here and the now, that we lose sight of all that is in store for us, all that God has got waiting for us. As we come together, as you study the Word, you humbly acknowledge and remind yourself that you haven't yet arrived. We're not there yet. We've still got so far to go. We passionately pursue the greater knowledge of Christ. We never lose the wonder of the gospel around us. We follow heavenly-minded examples. And we live in light of our true citizenship, understanding that this place is just temporary. With those five things in mind, we can move toward that level of maturity. We move toward that level of joy. We move toward that level where God has in store for us so much more than we have now.